The title of this evening's talk is Impermanence, the Gateway to Liberation. And some words from the Buddha. So you should view this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And from Crowfoot, from 1919, early in the century, who was a leader of the Blackfoot American Indian tribe. What is life? It's the flash of a firefly in night. It's the breath of buffalo in wintertime. It's the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. And from Ryokan, a wandering Japanese Zen monk, our life in this world, to what should I compare it? It's like an echo resounding through the mountain into the empty sky. There's a story that I heard once from a Tibetan monk about a very isolated area high in the mountains of Tibet where people have no access to matches. And of course there's no electricity or gas or uh, electric light uh, uh, and warmth. Uh, through any of these means uh, for cooking or for heat. And so for these necessities of life, uh, light, warmth, and cooking, in this area, the only way to access this is through making a fire. And to start a, a new fire every day without matches is quite a project. It takes uh, quite a bit of time. So the people in this area never let their fires go completely out. Every day, uh, all day, they keep a small fire burning. And uh, at night they cover it with ashes. So when they start their day in the morning, there are uh, some hot coals to begin uh, start the fire up again. The Buddhist monks in this area, this particular monk told me, uh, this, the Buddhist monks in this area uh, practice so deeply with impermanence as their practice that at night they don't try to save any coals. And also at night, uh, when they're finished with their last cup of tea, they turn their cup over uh, for the same reason to let the next person know that they have finished, uh, really finished. So every night, in a sense, we could say they prepare to die. Every night, they're practicing readiness for this. The deep knowing, the deep living with impermanence is an entryway, uh, a gateway to liberation a gateway to freeing the mind, a gateway to freeing the heart. 
The only thing that we can really know for sure is that everything changes. So paradoxically, the only thing that we can hold on to is the realization, the intuitive insight of anicca, impermanence. The wisdom, the understanding of anicca is really the bedrock of the Buddha's teaching. It was the initial insight that impelled him to leave the palace where he was born and grew up in search of a path to enlightenment. Siddhartha Gautama, our Buddha, so to say, grew up in very comfortable and protected surroundings in an area in India at the foot of the Himalaya mountains now known as Nepal. Seemingly living the good life. His father and mother were the king and the queen of the Sakyan clan in that area. And at Siddhartha's birth, a local wise man told his parents that this baby would grow up to be either an exceptionally wise ruler, like a king, or he would become a renunciate and a great spiritual teacher if he encountered great suffering. Well, his parents, uh, in order to keep him on the kingly track, set about to try to protect him from encountering suffering, as the story goes. And this is from one of the Buddha's discourses to his monks. Monks, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds in our palace, one where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, and one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. I used no sandalwood that was not from Benares. My turban of silk was from Benares, as were my tunic, my lower garments, and my outer cloak. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from the cold, heat, dust, dirt, and dew. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, and one for the rainy season. During the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man amongst them, and I did not once come down from that palace. But all of this protection, luxury, and sensual pleasure just couldn't keep him. It didn't satisfy. And at one point, as young people are wont to do, Siddhartha wanted to go out and see what life was like beyond the palace walls. And so he asked his good friend Chana, the chariot driver, to take him on a ride through town. It's said that his father had heard of this and ordered everything and everyone that uh, might cause some disturbance to his son to be taken off the streets, to be taken out of view. But of course, as we know, it's just not possible to have this kind of control over life. So, not long after they were out beyond the palace walls, Siddhartha saw a person walking on the road with a lot of difficulty and covered with oozing sores. 
he had never seen anything quite like this before. And he asked Chana, what is this? What's wrong with this person? And his friend responded, this is a very sick person. We all get sick. You'll get sick, I'll get sick, your parents will get sick. At some point, everyone gets sick. Siddhartha had been so protected, it said, that he never had really seen uh, such a sick person. And he was disturbed by the sight and wanted to go home and spent a restless night that night. But the next day, they went out again. And uh, as they were gone just a bit down the road, Siddhartha noticed someone moving very slowly, bent over with a cane, dry, wrinkled skin, thin, wispy hair. He said, what's the matter with this person, Chana? This is an old person, said Chana. Everyone gets old. You'll get old, your parents will get old, I'll get old, all your friends will get old. Well, Siddhartha was disturbed and wanted to go back home, so they did. And he spent another restless night, but the next day he wanted to go out again. As they were nearing the village, he saw a group of people all dressed in white, and they were crying and carrying a plank above their head with something on top of it that was covered with cloth. Siddhartha asked, what is this? What's going on here, and what is it that they're carrying? And Chana responded, That's, this is a funeral procession, and they're carrying a dead body. Everybody dies. I'll die, you'll die, your parents will die. Everyone dies. Well, again, young Siddhartha was quite disturbed. He said, enough, let's go home. And that night he barely slept. But the next morning, they went out again. And not long after they were out riding in the chariot towards town, Siddhartha noticed a man who was draped in orange cloth walking down the road. And he was walking with a lightness and a grace and a flow about him, bearing an air of peacefulness and ease. And Siddhartha said, who's that, Chana? And Chana responded, this man is a renunciate, a monk, a yogi. He's let go of his regular worldly life in search of the truth. And Siddhartha responded, this is enough, okay, let's go home. It's said that because of Siddhartha's many lifetimes of development into an, ex into an extremely sensitive and compassionate human being, the sights that he saw those four mornings, the four heavenly messengers as they're called, sickness, old age, death, and a truth-seeking yogi, struck him very deeply, struck him profoundly. He was moved by the impermanent and insubstantial nature of life that the first three messengers displayed, and also by the obvious suffering that he witnessed in relationship to these first three encounters. And he found himself very interested and powerfully drawn towards the fourth heavenly messenger, what the fourth heavenly messenger represented seeking peace, seeking freedom, seeking the truth. And again, now from one of the Buddha's discourses, even though I was endowed with such fortune, 
such total refinement, the thought occurred to me. When an untaught person, subject to aging, to illness, and to death, not beyond any of these, sees another who is aged, ill, or dead, he or she is often horrified, humiliated, and disgusted, oblivious to himself that he or she, too, is subject to aging, illness, and death. And if I, who am subject to aging, illness, and death, not beyond any of these things, were to be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another who is old, ill, or dead, that would not be fitting to me. As I noticed this, the healthy person's intoxication with youth, health, and life entirely dropped away. Why should I, who am subject to disease, old age, and death, seek that which is also subject to disease, aging, and death? Monks, he, the Buddha goes on to say, there are three forms of intoxication. Intoxication with youth, intoxication with health, intoxication with life. And he says, I overcame all intoxication with health, youth, and life as one who sees renunciation as rest. For me, energy arose. Unbinding was clearly seen. One of the most prevalent myths that we live with and often quite unconsciously, is the myth of things somehow staying the same. The myth that we can control this changing experience we call life. The Buddha talked about how powerful and consequential it is to experience just one moment fully absorbed in the feeling of metta. He also said even more powerful and fruitful than this is when there's one moment of clearly seeing the rapidity of the arising and passing away of phenomena. The stage in practice where one knows very clearly and surely the momentariness of all appearances. The powerful, direct experience and deep knowing of impermanence the seed of liberation, the seed of freedom, lies in this clarity of seeing and knowing. And again from the Buddha, what is born will die, what has been gathered will be dispersed, what has been accumulated will be exhausted, what has been built up will collapse, what has been high will be brought low, all conditioned things are transitory. Those who realize this are freed from sorrow. This is the path to freedom. Everything in this world, everything in this universe, begins and ends, is born and dies, is constantly changing form. Every form of life, every object, every relationship, every sensation, every thought, every feeling, every mind state, every perception 
every experience, every breath. The world of form outside and the world of form within, none of it is static. Our earth feels so solidly here, seems so permanently in place. Some years ago I received a postcard from a friend that had a very beautiful photograph on the front side, some sand dunes with mountains behind them. And looking at the photograph, um, it was a very pleasant experience. And then I turned the card over, and this was the explanation on the back of the card. The gypsum forming these dunes originated from the dry flats 20 miles west of the park, deposited as seabed evaporites some 250 million years ago, when an ocean covered this area, creating at that time the limestone reef known today as the Guadalupe Mountains. Approximately 10 to 12 million years ago, this region was uplifted and erosion began. The eroding gypsum was left along streams and riverbanks, and later the prevailing southwest winds blew it up against the base of the Guadalupe Mountains. So then I turned the card uh, back over to the photo side and looked with a different eye, we could say. Still, it was a pleasant experience viewing the picture, but there was a difference. The places that we live in appear as uh, though uh, they have forever been Mm -hmm. the way that they are. They often seem that way. Our attitude and our actions Mm -hmm. often reflect this. I teach the Dhamma in Israel every few years, a place where uh, so much strife has been going on for centuries around whose place it is. And at one point I found out that Jerusalem, a city uh, built of rock, on rock, you may have heard of Jerusalem stone, Jerusalem is built of Jerusalem stone on top of Jerusalem stone, This city has been destroyed and rebuilt 13 times over the centuries. With all of the traveling that I've done over the years, there have been times when I've looked up into the sky uh, to find stars and star formations that are familiar, kind of like old friends. And this is a, a piece that I found uh, some time ago from an, in the newspaper. Our own Milky Way galaxy is on a collision course with another galaxy, but you won't need to buy that insurance just yet. The most likely scenario is that Andromeda would first swing by our galaxy. It then would take perhaps 100 million years to make a slow U-turn before plunging into the Milky Way's core. Another burst of star formation will then occur with winds from the shock waves driving out the remaining gas and dust. After that, old and new stars will intermingle to form an elliptical galaxy. There will be no trace of Earth, 
save perhaps the 1970s era Pioneer and Voyager probes that are now beyond the solar system. The fireworks aren't due for more than five billion years, long after the sun has burned out and reduced the earth to a frigid cinder. Five billion years from now, we'll all be dead anyway, said Hubble scientist Edward Weiler. However, if we move out to the stars someday, our descendants will certainly witness that from somewhere else in the galaxy. The word form usually implies for us a solidity. But in reality, all forms are forming and unforming, coming together and coming apart, constantly and without end. So our world can't be solidly objectified. Our world isn't a noun, it's a verb. It's constant, incessant activity. And most of the time we only know this as an abstraction or as a concept. We mostly know it intellectually. And actually, I think even more we forget it. Or we ignore it. Or we're constantly distracting ourselves from it by accumulating. By planning by living in and out of memories, by fantasizing, hoping, expecting, coveting, fearing. If we rigidly, tightly hold on to how we want the future to be, or even how you want your next sitting to be, all of our energy gets used up in these thoughts. And then inevitably, inevitably we uh, come to face disappointment mm -hmm. or maybe anger or judgment or sadness or grief. And we've missed the fullness of the present moment. We've missed what Thich Nhat Hanh calls our appointment with life. And we're reinforcing, we're perpetuating the delusion. Perpetuating a false sense of control a false sense of permanence. So actually, much of the time, we're practicing permanence. Much of the time, we almost desperately want everything to stay as it is, to continue as we know it, or to become the way we want it to be, so much so that we believe we have control, that things will do what we want them to do. But this belief is really only make-believe, made-up beliefs. As our practice deepens and we begin to see more and more clearly, we discover that actually belief has little or nothing to do with reality. And that the tighter we grasp onto our beliefs, the more limited our life is. A good question you might ask yourself now and then is, how often do I construct my life on this kind of flimsy, rickety foundation of make-believe, made-up beliefs, with all of their assumptions, sometimes misinformation, varying in changing opinions, varying in changing ideas about this and that, 
and then hold on to it all quite tightly. As we learn to pay a kind of extraordinary attention to our experiences of body and mind through our practice, we begin to directly touch to experientially know the constant rapidity of change. From the seeming, seemingly solid substantiality of form to the smaller, maybe even minute, micro-changes in sensations to the seeming substantiality of thoughts that fly through the mind. There's a very brief Tibetan teaching that says all thoughts, good, bad, happy, sad, vanish into emptiness as the imprint of a bird in the sky. There's a story uh, that I'm told was, is true uh, about a particular physicist who had done a great deal of research on matter and its components and breaking it all down through his research and finding nothing substantial. And it's said that at that point he went a little bit crazy uh, and he started wearing these huge padded slippers all the time just in case he fell through the floor. <laughs> That'll be a test to see who, know, who really knows impermanence, those of you that start wearing huge padded slippers. <laughs> In reality, the very fabric, the very essence of life is change. So why do we fear, why do we resist this perfectly natural phenomena, change? the beginnings and the endings, the births and the deaths. Why can't we simply surrender to the truth of the moment? Why do we resist and fear so much of life? Without impermanence, actually, there would be no life. And from Thich Nhat Hanh, he says, if there's no impermanence, the grain of corn will remain a grain of corn forever and you will never have an ear of corn to eat. Impermanence is crucial to the life of everything. Instead of complaining about impermanence, we might say, long live impermanence. <laughs> Thanks to impermanence, everything is possible. And in this slide I'd like to read a poem to you by uh, a man named Red Hawk. He calls it, The Wheat Farmer Says Goodbye to His Only Daughter. His heart cracks like parched earth to see her go, but he is not free enough to weep. So he walks with her this evening out in the summer wheat, where the stalks beat softly. Suddenly in his fertile anguish, his heart blooms, and like the last mad king of wild wheat, he grabs his child and twirls her, through the sea of grain he whirls her, she holding tight, he boldly dancing in the moonlight. When at last they fall, he is winded and amazed. On his knees he embraces her. And then she takes her leaving, like a wild wheat flower, dancing, waving softly in the breathing wind. 
He watches her go weaving, moving slowly through the moonlight, and he fingers ripened grain in calloused hand. There's just one thing to do now that his daughter is departed, to harvest cleanly and without regret. In this way, he pays homage to the precious seeds he's planted. One blooms by rooting and one by blowing away. Looked at from these perspectives, Anicca is actually an amazing natural marvel. The universal movement of constant change and the cycling of all of the life on the planet. And the possibility of immediate presence with the maybe potential joys in this changing process not necessarily getting caught up, getting lost in and sinking in hopes, in fears, attachments, in regrets. We might consider that all of the life on the planet is dying all of the time in similar volume, for instance, as the new life that brings such incredible beauty and joy and delight to us each spring. And the new day, or the new life that greets us each morning when we wake up. And from William Blake. He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. So how might we move into a deeper exploration an acceptance, uh, a kind of a radical acceptance of the changing nature of things, the way of things. Our nature as nature. It's said that there are many, many doors, many mirrors for us in our practice, in our life. I once read that there are 84,000 Dharma doors, Dhamma doors for us to potentially go through. So for example, you've been sitting for an hour in calm, tranquility, a degree of stillness and sweetness is developed and it's known. And then the thought coming in, Oh, this is good. This is really good. I'll just stay here for another hour or maybe two. And then strong bodily pain, painful sensations start up the legs. And maybe you continue to cling very tightly to your agenda, your hope, your preference to sit another hour and uh, get through the pain. Maybe put up with it or tough it out or maybe find a way to get rid of it, or maybe even try to ignore it. Or somehow maybe pretend it's not there. So that you can meet your preference, meet your goal. This relationship to pain makes it a thing. Something solid, substantial, a concept, and something to control. So that you can continue with what you've chosen to do the thing that you think will lead to your 
awakening lead to your enlightenment. Sitting another hour, that ought to do it. Or maybe you relate to the pain another way. Maybe you relate to the pain via what I sometimes call the without mind. A mind that's not made up, without any preferences, and without the concept of pain. So you might simply and directly and intimately connect just with what is. Seeing all the varying sensations occurring in your leg and then noticing them changing, noticing them moving, recognizing that in fact this sit right now is a meditation with changing sensations. Nothing solid, nothing static, no preference, no clinging to anything in those moments including a time frame. Just being with, seeing and knowing experience in the midst of the truth of how it is, how it really is. This is really fertile ground for wisdom to sprout up and blossom. The Another Dharma door, the Dharma door, the mirror of the changing seasons around us and within us. Many years ago, uh, during a three-month retreat that I was sitting at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, I was taking a slow walk through the forest out back. And it was during the height of autumn color in New England. And I was seeing the ground carpeted with rich reds and shades of brown and clear yellows and shimmering golds and greens. It was incredible beauty. I was quite immersed in this experience. And then all of a sudden, a knowing coming in. Not through thought, not at all through thought, but an intuitive, a deep intuitive knowing that This beauty is death. That the world is dying in its unbearable beauty. And after that I cried on and off for a couple of days. Not continuously, but uh, at times quite deeply. And certainly as some of you know, uh, on a long retreat if you need to cry for a moment or longer, you can. (laughs) it's quite all right (laughs) I was at that point in a sense grieving the loss of the world feeling my heart breaking and at the same time elated though still uh, conceptual to some degree it was an opening an opening and a release in relationship to Anicca. And soon after this, uh, a friend gave me this haiku. When with breaking heart, I realized this world is only a dream, the oak tree looks radiant. This constant cycling, circling, the universal movement of life, light to dark, to light to dark, wind to rain to sunshine to cloud cover the seasons changing seasons the movement of the breath through the body 
Mary Oliver writes about this in her unique and beautiful way in a poem she calls In Blackwater Woods. Look, the trees are turning their own bodies into pillars of light, are giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon and fulfillment. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away over the blue shoulders of the ponds. And every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires in the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation. Whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, let it go. As we look more closely at our own process through our practice, we might begin to see that uh, we've been living under a kind of assumed identity. The assumed solidity of our body and thoughts, quickly followed along by clinging onto thoughts, feelings, and emotions. All of the habitual fixations that we live with and believe and call our own, call me, call mine, and think that this is who we are. As we practice, we begin to see to experience more and more directly, more clearly, and more often that things, the phenomena of our life, aren't necessarily as they appear, or at least as they've appeared up until now. We begin to experience the whole thing, or at least parts of it, as process happening, as changing sensation, changing feelings, as various changing manifestations of the myriad forms of mind and body, each with particular qualities, particular flavors, textures, that are constantly changing themselves on both the gross in a very subtle level. And so our relationship to all of the forms, both inner and outer, begins to change. The compulsive, addictive grasping, trying to hold on to the passing show, begins to loosen its strong attraction. Trying to control what's actually uncontrollable ungovernable, this ongoing miracle of constant change we call life begins to soften as we open our hands, so to say. And we begin, in fact, to see how excruciating it is to grasp on so tightly. The fear that's underneath this impetus to control, the fear of being in and with life as it is, begins to relax, begins to open and weaken. The fear begins to fade as we surrender more and more deeply to the truth of the moment. 
And so now we're practicing anicca, we're practicing impermanence. When a particular student here in New Mexico uh, began to connect more deeply with the truth of Anicca and the understanding that he didn't have any control over the unfolding of events, uh, and as he expressed it, he not only saw more honestly and clearly, but also began to accept that his day never went just as he planned it. He also began to see and accept that his aging body was actually no different than the day. And he recognized that this body was just simply unfolding, just like the day, undoing according to the conditions that he had absolutely no control over. One evening in a practice interview, he told me that he was beginning uh, his sit each morning before going to work with forgiving his body and forgiving the day before it started. Because, as he said, it never goes as I plan, hope, expect, or dream it to be. His habit for many, many years had been one of aversion. Primarily a stance of irritation, a stance of anger at, taking kind of an offensive stance towards things, towards people, towards events not going his way. His early morning forgiveness practice wasn't out of the feeling that uh, the day or his body had or was uh, going to do something wrong and that he needed to forgive them for this. Forgiveness was really coming from the softening heart of acceptance for how it is. And this softening heart was also forgiving itself for the pain that it had experienced for so many years in hardening against how things are, hardening against the truth that things just completely naturally arise, change, and pass away without end. Occasionally people ask me, as you may sometimes ask yourself or others who practice, why do you meditate? And at one point when I was asked this, much to my surprise, out of my mouth came, I'm practicing for my death. (laughs) And so it is. I am practicing for my death. On one level, so that if conditions allow, I'll have the great strength and clarity of concentration and mindfulness to be able to be fully present at what we think of as the big death. And I think for most of us, this moment seems like it will be an extraordinary moment. But actually, it will be just another moment. Another moment, in fact, with all the same principles applying to any other moment. Just simply a moment to be with the immediacy of what's occurring. What's occurring in the body, what's occurring in the heart, what's occurring in the mind. A moment like any other moment to just be as you are. 
a moment to be approached and connected with in a fresh way that beginner's mind, that don't know mind a moment in fact that has never been experienced before so in the overall or the big picture of practice perspective of practice I'm practicing towards the possibility of being fully present in and with this moment But the momentary reality of much of practice right now is with a mindful presence that recognizes and relinquishes the ways the so-called self keeps recreating this assumed identity, this delusion of a separate, solid self. Recognizing the habitually learned patterns that support selfing and letting go relinquishing this again and again and again so one way this could be said is that it's a practice of seeing the death of who I've thought I was and recognizing the truth of who I am there are hundreds thousands, actually millions of little endings minute deaths moment to moment to moment even just breath by breath and in ways that we really never could have imagined or expected as practice deepens and matures it gets easier and easier to open to, clearly see accept and surrender to this utterly natural phenomena the assumed solidity the assumed identity of me I and you that's so frightening seemingly frightening to let go of is seen through our practice more and more just as process beginning changing and ending again and again, every minute, every second, if we're really attentive. What appears to be a steady, solid flow of experience, even the presence of consciousness itself, is not as we ordinarily perceive it to be. The reality of body-mind experience can be likened to the frames of a film. The illusion being, uh, uh, though the phenomena appears, uh, happens, appears to happen with an ongoing continuous flow, in reality, it's all beginning and ending, arising and falling away on the most minute level, second by second by second. And this is from the Buddha. Bhikkhus yogis I will teach you the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana listen to that and what yogis is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana here a yogi sees the I as impermanent sees forms as impermanent sees eye consciousness as impermanent sees eye contact as impermanent sees whatever feelings arise with eye contact as the condition as impermanent whether they're pleasant 
painful or neutral, sees it all as impermanent. She or he sees the ear as impermanent, and he goes on through each of the sense doors. The mind, mental phenomena, mind consciousness, mind contact, sees whatever feelings arise with mind contact as the object, whether pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, as impermanent. This yogis is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. The acceptance of change, of the forming and unforming, of the birth and death, is actually truly the acceptance of life. All of the aspects of who we think we are just keep changing, including what we think we want, what we think we need, our desires that seem so clear and so strong and so right in any given moment. These two can change quite rapidly, as you probably have noticed. So another uh, three-month retreat story. Three-month retreats uh, uh, seem to provide uh, uh, lots of useful Dhamma stories. <laughs> so again, many years ago, um, sitting a three-month retreat, in the back of the Insight Meditation Society dining room, there's a very small dining room with shelves on the wall that's uh, used for uh, yogis to put keep their special stashes of things, maybe vitamins or special teas or chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) One day a note uh, appeared on top of my stash and it was a note from the person who had a stash of things right next to mine. And the note was offering me some green tea. And I hadn't paid any attention to the people uh, around me back there so I didn't have any idea who this person was. A very pleasant feeling arose with the offer of green tea. This person offering me a gift. Very pleasant. And in fact, I also like green tea. So I answered the note. Thank you, I said. I'll have some. Then a second note appeared on top of my stash, offering me a hat. And uh, this person had noticed that I was going outside without one and that uh, it was beginning to get quite cool outside. (laughs) Not such a pleasant feeling arose in my mind. I felt I, me, felt impinged upon, not liking the attention at that point. But I answered the note politely, thanked him and said, I already have a hat. Then a third note uh, (laughs) appeared and this was a practice question and a most decidedly unpleasant feeling arose in the mind, followed by a, quick, a very uh, quick, unmindful reaction to write a not-so-polite note back. <laughs> but fortunately, um, mindfulness and wise discernment kicked in quite quickly, and I didn't write back a nasty note. Um, I just simply relaxed and let go and didn't even respond at all. And at that point, That was the end of the notes. No more notes came. As I think you would probably all agree, when you feel pleasant and unpleasant as a result of contact through one of the uh, six sense doors, 
the pleasant and unpleasant feeling isn't in the external object, nor is it within the internal object of attention, such as a bodily sensation or a thought. The feeling is in the mind. So what is it that's often the root of the particular feeling that arises in relationship to our experiences? In my three-month story, the feeling and the subsequent action of answering the first two notes and the feeling followed by the reaction in the mind to the third note were all very clearly coming from a place of self, from me, capital M-E. As we pay a closer and closer attention, we see that pleasant experiences sometimes change into unpleasant experiences, or vice versa. We see that pleasant and unpleasant can very quickly move into likes and dislikes, and then rapidly move into maybe seeming needs or rightful rejections. We see that we're momentarily relatively happy. We're momentary relatively, momentarily relatively unhappy. All, all of this relative conditioned states of mind, totally dependent on a whole set of conditions which are themselves also constantly changing moment to moment to moment. Emotional states of mind, for many of us, are stickiest experiences. And yet they, too, change very quickly. So just, for example, states of anger, irritation, resentment, judgment, all feel so very solid and seem so right, so absolute. Anger is a very powerful, energetic We could say passionate energy. With a clear attention into anger, seeing and knowing it, and letting go of the self-referencing, the identification, my anger, my righteous anger. Letting go of this contracted, self-centered quality that's inherent in anger pulling out the thread of self, we could say, we can then clearly see what's actually taking place on all sides, from all perspectives. There's a clear presence. There's an immediate connection. With the possibility, then, of anger transforming into a mirror-like wisdom, out of which can spring appropriate, compassionate action, if necessary. As we learn to experience with more clarity, to receive experience with more clarity, we begin to see ourselves as well as others with less judgment. And we might begin to see that 
we are to whatever degree also still acting out of and have in the past acted out of ignorance or forgetfulness acted out or more accurately reacted out of old conditioned habitual places of suffering many times ourselves and so we change we begin to meet ourselves as well as others with more open-hearted clarity and more compassion and these are uh, uh, some words from uh, 13th century Zen master Dogen he spoke about Buddha nature and its relationship to impermanence and these are his words We do not just have Buddha nature, but we are Buddha nature. When things are seen in their fleetingness and ephemerality, their impermanence, not only is understanding great wisdom born, but also the other pillar of deepest insight, great compassion, impartial care, love, that may even include one's enemy. So moving on to another Dharma door. Probably most of us at times have had a very strong identification with our face and our body in relationship to how it looked when we were younger. Mm-hmm. My mother um, was in her 80s uh, and 90s. When she was in her 80s and 90s, there were times when the two of us would um, find ourselves standing next to each other um, and uh, in front of a mirror and looking at ourselves and looking at each other. And at one point when we were doing this, she said to herself and to me, I see an old woman. It's so strange. And she kept repeating it over and over. It's so strange. It's so strange. I see an old woman. I've changed so much. It's so strange to see. And then once when she was 91 and we were doing this, standing in front of the mirror, looking in the mirror, she said, I look older than everybody else in the whole world. <laughs> and then she said, it doesn't match how I feel inside. And then she went on again, it's so strange, it's so strange. Is it strange? Is it really strange? Stranger than what? <laughs> it's just life doing its thing. It's life being lifey. <clears throat> One of my students in Israel sent me this poem which fits quite well here. It's called Such Tenderness. Such tenderness in our bodies when they abandon us slowly, reluctant to hurt us with a sudden jolt. Gradually, wistfully, like a semi-sleeping beauty, they weave for us tiny wrinkles of light and wisdom not faults of an earthquake, an airy network, cracks of horror. How kind of our bodies that they don't alter our faces all at once, that they don't break our bones with one blow. No, cautiously, like a pale moon, bestowing its glow, they illumine us in a net of grieving nerves, fold our skin at the edges, harden our spines, so we can withstand it all. Such beauty, such tenderness in our bodies that gradually betray us, graciously prepare us, tell us in whispers, little by little, hour by hour, 
that they are leaving. Have you ever looked in the mirror at yourself for a long time? Just really focused and looked for a while. It just keeps changing. Keeps on changing. Whose face is this? Who is this face? Who sees? And this is uh, uh, the poet and translator Stephen Mitchell's version of Narcissus. It was not the image of his own face that transfixed him as he bent down over the pool. He had seen that face often before, in mirrors and a thousand photographs in women's eyes. It was an undistinguished face, but handsome enough, with its long eyelashes, full lips, and stately nose sloping to a curious plateau near the tip. No, it was something else now that rooted him to the spot. Kneeling there, gazing into the so-taken-for-granted form, he grew more and more poignantly aware that it was mere surface. When the water was calm, it was calm. When the water rippled at the touch of a leaf or a fish, it too rippled or broke apart when he churned the water with his hand. More and more fascinated, he kept staring through the image of his face into the depth beneath, filled with a multitude of other moving, shadowy forms. He knew that if he stayed there long and patiently enough, he would be able to see straight through to the bottom. And at that moment, he knew the image would disappear. The mirror of nature again as a teacher of impermanence. And another brief vignette from a three-month retreat. And I was sitting out behind the Insight Meditation Society observing the grasses each day in late fall. And noticing that grass, the grass was each grass and the grass as a whole was losing its moisture drying up, losing its color, changing shape, changing form, curling over. Being quite acutely aware of all this. Are we different than this? Are we really different than this? What's the Dhamma of grass? No matter how much moisturizer we use, <laughs> no matter how many vitamins we take, no matter how many energetic walks we take or how much yoga we do, no matter how much good healthy food we eat, our skin dries out, our hair loses its color, our bodies change shape. No matter who we are or how hard we try, we just don't stay young. This mass of skin and bones has its schedule to keep and there's nothing we can do about it. And another poem by Liselle Mueller. 
called Fugitive. My life is running away with me. The two of us are in cahoots. I hold still while it paints dark circles under my eyes, streaks, gray, streaks my hair gray, stuffs pillows under my dress. <laughs> in each new room, the mirror reassures me I'll not be recognized. I'm learning to travel light like the juice in the power line. My baggage, swallowed by memory, weighs almost nothing. No one suspects its value. When they knock on my door, badges flashing, I open up. I don't match their description. Wrong room, they say, and apologize. My life in the corner winks and wipes off my fingerprints. <laughs> and one more poem. And this is another poem by Red Hawk. And he says, uh, he calls it, The Time Comes When It's Easier to Die. We have to go deeper inside like a tired miner chipping through stone. We have to dig even when we've had enough and it's no longer worth it to get up out of bed. The morning is cold. The gray clouds move in like a flock of dark crows over a picked field. That's when we have to go deeper through another hard layer of pain. You have to be relentless to make it in this place because it will be relentless with you. It will never stop beating and grinding, wearing you down with one more thing gone wrong. Friends will die or their nerves will fail. Women will cease to be thrilled with you. Your sorry efforts to hold it all together will come to nothing. You will still tremble in the leg, go gray and dim in the face, leak more every year in your yellowed shorts. Don't be in a hurry to pack it in. The time will come when it's easier to die than to dig. The trick is to find the gold before death finds you and then to sit there in the heart where you cannot be taken while death storms and rages all around you, stealing everything in sight, but only left holding a bag of bones. It's hard to see how we can continue to keep what in our culture is almost like a secret with everything changing and aging and such multitudes doing the dying if we're really inclined towards freedom. We have to give up the notion that change or even death is a catastrophe or detestable or avoidable or even strange. Our practice directs us towards learning directly, experientially about change the macro and micro cycling of life and that we're not separate from this process. We are this process. At the age of 18, my closest uh, high school uh, girlfriend and I went to Stratford, Ontario to um, see a few Shakespearean plays. And on our way home, we were in an automobile accident, and my friend was killed. It was really quite amazing. One minute she was alive, driving the car, and we'd had these three wonderful days together. And the next moment she was lying in the middle of the highway, dying. And myself with just a few bruises and scrapes.
and I was washing her dying body with water and then she was just gone. It was an extremely powerful wake-up call for me. And not long after she died, I resolved that I would live fully every minute. Actually, I said it every second I would live fully because I now knew that it could all end in just a second. And of course, I've forgotten my resolve many times, many, many times. But I've also remembered it many times. This experience, this momentary experience with its lucid insight into impermanence was really a big part of what guided me towards spiritual practice. Although in my 18-year-old self, I didn't really think of it or didn't word it this way. And it's been interesting to see how this resolve to live every moment fully has unfolded over the years. There's been an ongoing letting go of many of the complexities and the seeming necessities of what we call normal life. Living more fully has meant living more simply, which has in fact allowed me to be more fully with the moments of living the moments of change, the beginnings and endings, the births and the deaths. As a lay practitioner, this letting go or renunciation has evolved over the years to be a relinquishment of that which doesn't serve awakening. And as I'm sure many of you have found, it's a process that unfolds quite naturally through our practice. Sometimes it's a conscious choice, a decision made between this or that. But very often it's just a matter of really being present and paying attention and responding to in whatever ways are the healthiest and most appropriate both for oneself and in relationship to others. Which may mean renouncing some of one's habitual ways of engaging or not engaging, both inwardly and outwardly, recognizing and letting go of attachments, which doesn't at all mean rejecting the people who are closest to us, but rather relating to them in what might be a radically new way. And this is a small piece from a Cherokee Feast of Days. Autumn. Can there be anything more beautiful than the seasons of a tree? A tree stands in beauty from year to year and keeps its grace and dignity. We learn when we watch a tree. It constantly prunes itself, continually shedding any excess. The Buddha said that living a single moment, seeing the impermanence of all conditioned things, is more valuable than living a hundred years without seeing it. It's so valuable because clear seeing leads to the end of confusion and anguish. 
Clear and sure insight into anicca leads to understanding the cause of suffering. Clearly seeing the arising and passing away of phenomena, knowing very surely the momentariness of all appearances, opens the door of insight into the conditional, selfless, empty nature of all things, all phenomena. I think that in our thinking, most of us assume that permanence provides security and that impermanence doesn't. But in actually, in actuality, although change may be very difficult and at times quite disturbing, at least at first, as we open to it and get to know it, get to know it more deeply, and Nietzsche can be a profound inspiration to go deeper into our practice. And we may, we may also come to realize that on one level, it's really, truly a gift. What if nothing ever changed? Can you even imagine what it would be like if nothing ever changed? An incredible nightmare, the worst nightmare. No change, no life. In uh, 1985, my house burned down to the ground. Uh, Fortunately, no one was um, there when it happened. My three adult sons and I were away visiting my mother, who at that point was living in Mexico. And a few days after we'd arrived at my mother's house, I received a phone call from a friend who lived down the road from our house, which was in the Michigan woods. And he called to tell me that my house had burned to the ground. (laughs) Well, my first response to him on the telephone was denial. I said, you're kidding. (laughs) But of course, who would call up a friend? a long distance, and it was Christmas, uh, in fact, and make such a joke. Um, So after we finished our very brief conversation, I I believed him, and I hung up the phone, and I cried very hard for about 15 minutes, and my mother, who was standing right next to me, didn't ask any questions. She just put her arms around me and held me while I cried. And then um, my brother and I uh, stepped into the other room and we sat down and we talked for about two hours. And by the end of this two-hour conversation, the fire actually turned out to be a gift. I didn't have any things to hold me. I didn't have any things to bind me anymore. The spiritual path, we could say, had burned its way open for me. (laughs) And uh, certainly, as uh, some of you know, uh, in Asian countries, it's not uh, not unusual for people in their 40s and 50s whose family responsibilities have essentially ended uh, to go and live out the rest of their life as a spiritual life, which was my inclination at that point, even though I lived in the U.S., So to make a long story short, uh, I ended up going to Asia for uh, approximately a year and a half, and I practiced quite ardently, quite diligently uh, during that whole time. And then uh, when I came back here to this country, I continued in a similar vein. Um, 
So it really, if it wasn't for that fire, there's a very strong possibility that I wouldn't be with you uh, here now in this way. That huge change was a great gift that's still unwrapping itself. And this is a haiku from Basho that says it quite distinctly and metaphorically. Since my house burned down, I have a better view of the rising moon. (laughs) (laughs) And from Carlos Castaneda's book, Journey to Ixlan. The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you or if you just catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. Not long before Carlos Castaneda died, he and three of his friends were having lunch together. And uh, Michael Ventura, who was one of these friends, uh, wrote uh, a piece about that uh, uh, wrote a piece about Carlos Castaneda with something about that lunch. So I'd like to read just a little bit of this. This is uh, Michael Ventura's words, speaking about Carlos Castaneda. He was much thinner, older, obviously ill. But for all his fragility, he seemed much livelier, happier, and even funnier. A woman at the table said she loved her job, her husband, and her child, but she still felt a lack. She had no spiritual life. How could she achieve a spiritual life? Answering this woman, Carlos didn't change the lightness or the generosity of his manner, yet a steely thing came into his voice, a tone that made his words pierce all of us. He said that when she got home at night, she should sit in her chair and remember that her child, her husband, and everyone she loved and she herself were going to die, and that they would die in no particular order, unpredictably. Remember this every night, and you'll soon have a spiritual life, said Carlos. <laughs> Later in the conversation, this woman asked how she could discipline herself to follow his advice and follow it deeply so that it wouldn't just be an exercise. Carlos says, you give yourself a command. On the page, there's no duplicating how he said it. He spoke quietly, but it was as though he'd suddenly jammed a knife into the tabletop. What's that mean, one of us asked. It means you give yourself a command. And that was that. A command is not a promise. A command is not trying. A command is something that must be obeyed. His tone invoked something deeper than the idea of mere will. His was a call to action. He wasn't talking about mulling or analyzing or wishing. To step on the path, you step on the path. And there's no substitute for that. As we touch and begin to accept the dance that life is in all of its manifestations, our life begins to take on a peacefulness, a deeper balance, and equanimity and a great appreciation and joy begins to blossom we live so much more fully 
in the present moment, seeing all the formations and actions of the body, the mind, and the heart, and the whole dance and play of life around us as continually changing, self-arising, self-liberating, coming and going, forming and unforming. And we're more and more with life just as it is, within the very natural, innate spaciousness and clarity of present moment awareness. As we wake up to the anicca nature of all phenomena, we less and less experience that feeling of missing anything. Instead, we're responding to life here, now, with an authentic, bright liveliness as it dances through us and around us. We're just simply here with the passing show. And from the Buddha, this existence of ours is as transient as the autumn clouds. To watch the birth and death of beings is like looking at the movements of a dance. A lifetime is like a flash of lightning in the sky, rushing by like a torrent down a steep mountain. Living more deeply with the acceptance of impermanence allows us to respond more freshly to what in reality is completely new. A moment, every moment, any moment, never before met, never before experienced. And as I said in an earlier Dhamma talk, as Krishnamurti says, as though we don't know anything about it and moving from innocence to innocence. And so we practice seeing clearly. The truth of impermanence is a gateway out of the feeling of separateness. It's a gateway out of the suffering of self-centered existence. And it's a gateway into the experiential understanding of the truth that there's no independently existing, separate, solid, static anything. It's all not self. We begin to understand that we're intimately woven into this intricate, endlessly reflecting, changing web of life. And we also begin to understand that the suffering in ourselves and others, we begin to understand the suffering that's created by trying to hold on, the anguish created by resistance, resistance to the truth that every facet of life within us and surrounding us is not fixed, not permanent, not static. We and it are intricately woven together with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted jeweled net of life. And from the Buddha, contemplation of impermanence should be cultivated for dispelling the conceit, I am. For when one perceives impermanence, Megiya, the perception of not-self is established. With the perception of not-self, the conceit, I am, is eliminated. And that is Nibbana, here and now.
as understanding of anicca deepens, it actually brings a great relief and lightness into our life. We no longer need to haul around such a heavy load. And there's the time and the energy available to live to our heart's content. And closing this evening's talk with a poem by Michael Lunig, who's an Australian cartoonist and poet. And he draws a little cartoon with each of his poems, and I have to describe the cartoon. This particular cartoon is a line drawing of a man. He has his arm, his left arm stretched out straight to the side, and in his hand he's holding a frying pan. And in the frying pan there's a big blob of black stuff, and there's smoke billowing out of it. And he's looking at the frying pan with kind of wide-eyed amazement. And this is the poem that goes with it. We give thanks for the invention of the handle. (laughs) Without it, there would be many things we couldn't hold on to. As for things we can't hold on to anyway, let us gracefully accept their ungraspable nature and celebrate all things elusive, fleeting, and intangible. They mystify us and make us receptive to truth and to beauty. We celebrate and give thanks. And let's just sit quietly for a moment or two. 